That is Sushi Mamire. Ah, I love that band. Uh, and this is the Hero Hero Ghost Show. I am Bo Ransdell. This is episode four in our journey into the world of Asian horror cinema. This time around, we are dealing with one of my favorites, a movie that scared me in a way that few movies can do. Uh, from the disjointed narrative to the now iconic images of Toshio and Kayako, Takashi Shimizu's film is either a funhouse ride that delivers shocks and thrills, or a bunch of nonsense tied together by meowing ghosts. Here to help us decide which it is, Dave Zendano has joined us. Uh, Dave has been in horror podcasting for many years now, uh, most recently with the Exploding Heads Horror Podcast. I'm going to point you toward episode 10 in particular, which charts the best movies from 1975 to 2015. If you do the math on that, that is 40 years of horror movies being discussed, and that is a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, Dave, take a bow, tell me what I got wrong, and welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bo. Um, no, you got you got everything right. Everything is perfect. Episode 10, 40 years. Even though it's technically, it would only be 39 years, but... Uh, you, you know, <laughs> th- this is America, Dave. We are not going to be sticklers about math. Right. Uh, it, would, it would sound better. Yeah, that's all. right, right. <laughs> it's just... 40 years sounds way better than 39. 39 39 movies sounds like you're not trying. 40 sounds like you're doing something. Actually, I I messed up. It would actually be 41 years, correct? Uh, Who knows? (laughs) I I had a public education, Dave. I I couldn't tell you. Uh, All I know is that I'm in the country of Tennessee, and that's uh, as far as I go. Uh, All right. I'm in New York, so we're good. Yeah. What part of New York in, by the way? Buffalo. Ah. I spent a fair amount of time in Albany, which I understand is not the same city, but Albany is, uh, and I was there for one of the harshest winters they'd had in a while. Uh, this is going back almost 20 years, but um, that was a depressing place to be. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it can be. Yeah, uh, but, you know, I, I did weekends in the city and whatnot, and that was uh, an absolute blast. So I've... Uh, I, I don't necessarily have a lot of fondness for Albany. I have a great deal of fondness for New York City, and um, I think New York State in general is is surprisingly lovely in the uh, the northern extremes. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is lovely. It's just you just got to worry about the damn snow for half the year. Yeah, it's stark. I mean, it's like you're basically living in the book Ethan from uh, for part <laughs> of, part of your year. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, good call. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I like to interject a little Eden, Edith Wharton uh, references here and there in a show about Asian horror films. Uh, I think it's thematically consistent. But oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so we were talking about Juan, 
And right off the bat, I like to ask people, what was your first encounter with uh, Juwan? Uh, where did it happen? Were you alone? Uh, how, how were you dressed? You don't have to go that far. But uh, <laughs> what, what was your experience with the film? Well, I actually wasn't even aware of it until The American Grudge came out. And went to see the movie. Actually, really, really do enjoy The Grudge. And not surprising, it's another one directed by Shimizu and starring the same ghosts. But uh, I didn't know until then. And then as soon as that came out, I got wind of Juwan, The Grudge. And then I actually bought the whole set off of eBay. You can't even get these movies now. Like The Curse 1 and The Curse 2, can't even get them. But... I bought the four-pack of Curse 1, Curse 2, and Grudge 1, and Grudge 2, and then sat down and marathoned them in one night because I fell in love instantly. And, yeah, I fell in love because they scared the shit out of me, and most things don't. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience, and I, I was in the same boat where I saw the American The Grudge first. And, uh, and I think a lot of people... I, that is a much maligned film among certain horror fans. Um, and I think it's surprisingly good as an adaptation of a, a Japanese film. Um, and you know, it's, it's Shimizu doing his thing. It's very, very similar, even though it, it kind of cribs parts of Juan two. Uh, but it's a, a really interesting movie. And plus I saw it on a date and, and she was not prepared for something like that. Uh, which was all to my benefit, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah so uh yeah and uh i'm you know it's interesting you bring that up i think our listeners some of our listeners may be surprised to know that juan is technically the third film in the series uh as you said you know the first two were were straight to video uh films also done by shimizu and you know here comes juan which is the first one to be theatrically released um, even though it has some of the DVD trappings, but we'll we'll get into that later. Um, so what we're going to do initially is we're going to traipse through the plot of this. And I thought uh, for for goofs, um, <laughs> what we might do is, you know, so the, the movie is separated um, into six chapters. Um, all all taken from the uh, the names of the victims. Of each chapter, uh, rather than kind of go through it in this fragmented narrative, I thought we might try to piece this together a little bit more chronologically. Um, wow! Wow! I'm impressed. I'm, I'm wow. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, I'm. I'm not <laughs> saying we're going to be successful. I'm just saying we're going to try. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's try. Okay. So the initial story. And this goes back to the the uh, straight-to-video stuff. And correct me where I get something wrong, because I, I actually have not seen those. I haven't been able to get my hands on them. Uh, Nobody can. It sucks. And it, here's a sad story. Mine were taken from me. And uh, it's been about seven years now. And you can't get them anywhere. The only way you can get them is on YouTube. And it's not anywhere obvious. You have to do some serious searching. So... Huh. It's unfortunate. Yeah. 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 It's a real bummer. And it's surprising to me that especially, well, and maybe the, you know, the box set that you got was kind of riding that wave of J horror when, you know, like dark waters and Juan and all, and, uh, the ring and all that stuff was, was kind of hitting 
the U.S. shore. So it makes sense to box it up like that. Um, I don't know. I might have to hit eBay. That's an aside. Um, Good oh, luck. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he'll pay a pretty penny for that, I'm sure. Uh, if you can find it at all, believe me, it really is that hard. That's I'm very much into the series. I'm kind of obsessed with the, the Juan series as a whole, and uh, I have not been able to find them. Not not even for a pretty penny. For nothing, haven't been able to find them yet. Ugh, all right, now now it's, you're, it's crazy. You're I know. you're just giving me a quest now. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, put on my chainmail and go in search of uh, <laughs> Juan and its predecessors. Um, all right, let me know. <laughs> all right, so okay, so we start with going going back to the original films. Um, uh, Takeo Seiki kills his wife Kiako, and I don't know. It, it's not clear in Juan, and you can you can maybe uh, set the record straight on this. But Toshio, the son, I don't is he murdered or is he just abandoned to die? They don't show him murdered, but the implication is that he's murdered him, him along with his cat. Okay. So, uh, which, by the way, quick little bit of trivia, which you probably already know. In Japanese culture, uh, the black cat does not have the same meaning it does in the West. Uh, right. There, there is no, like, bad luck and, and that sort of thing aren't associated with black cats. Uh, the reason that there are so many damn cats in these movies is that Shimizu likes cats. <laughs> So, <laughs> I think I, I, I. In fact, uh, there is an interview he has where he's quoted as saying something to the effect of, um, "I would like to have a cat. Um, I don't have the time to have a cat, so I just put them in my movies, and I have a house full of like porcelain black cats." Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, some of which make appearances in this movie. By the way, <laughs> they do. There's one scene in particular where. <laughs> You know, it's a Where's Waldo of which one of these are real and <laughs> yeah. which ones are not. And it, maybe it's not so hard to figure that out. Um, but I still kind of love that. Uh, yeah, it's cool. It's funny. So, all right. So he kills and uh, Mar is the name of the, the cat. Um, so at that point, um, we are going to get into the concept of, of the Onryo. Uh, because what happens is uh, this murder and uh, and of of Keiko and uh, does he take his own life ultimately as well? Um, I don't because you never really see that. D does he kill himself in the earlier films? Let me think about that. I think that he. I think he actually gets killed by Kayako. Hung, I believe. Now, I could be wrong. I haven't seen Curse in 1, 2 in a while, unfortunately, as I've explained. But either that, I think that is what happens. I don't think he kills himself, no. Okay, so so he is technically the first victim of the the vengeful ghost of Kayako. I think that that's quite possible. Okay, yeah. well, we're going to go with that um, <laughs> for right now. <laughs> but, um, okay, so... There is, um, the house is now cursed. You know, it is, it is the idea of someone who is wrongfully killed. And, and here's one of the things I love about Japanese horror in juxtaposition with Western horror. Like Western horror, it, like if you go into a haunted house, most of those movies are all about like, what's the source of the haunting and how can we put these souls at rest? Yep. In, 
drawn in a lot of Japanese uh, horror cinema where where it relates to ghosts and whatnot, uh, but particularly the Juan series, um, the curse is more like dog poop. Uh, and bear with me. Um, because what happens is you step inside this house and you get a little curse on you. And then you just carry it with you. So it is a, a, it's not like you've got to go to this location and, you know, investigate the source of the haunting and stuff like that. If you go into this house, you're just kind of screwed. And yep. no, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, it's going to find you and kill you. And then you become part of the curse. Like it spreads, uh, from, you know, the, uh, the initial house to like when we get into, uh, Hitomi and, and so forth. Like it's not trapped in the house. It's just the source. And I really like that. I like the idea of a haunting that isn't a challenge to the homeowners. It's just like, no, no, no. You set foot in there and you're kind of done. And it's, it's not your fault, but eh, you know, sometimes them's the breaks. <laughs> yeah, I love that about this series, and that's why I hold it in such high regard, because that's it. You go in the house, you're done. There's nothing you can do, and Kayako can decide any method and any time she wants to do this. And she'll kill you. Yeah, that's it. She's very Jesus like in that way. You know, she picks the time <laughs> and, and, and date of her choosing. Um, yeah. So, all right. So we start the film, or chronologically, here's how we're going to do this. So. Uh, there's a new owner of the house, the the Tokunagas, uh, who is uh, it's the husband uh, Katsuya. It is uh, Kazumi, his wife, and they're taking care of their uh, their. I think it's his mother Sachi, and uh, so <laughs> again, chronologically speaking, I know like Rika is coming. We'll get to her in a bit, but um, so. Katsuya is basically going off to work one day and uh, Kazumi starts to hear stuff happening upstairs in this house and uh, goes to, you know, uh, peek around. And sure enough, there's Toshio, um, which which freaks her out. And then uh, Kayako shows up. And, uh, with all her dark hair and, and being all creepy and whatnot. And she goes catatonic. Right. And then, um, Katsuya comes home and we find that, um, oh, also important to the setup. It, they mentioned during this scene that they have hired someone from basically social services or, you know, it's hired social services to come and kind of take care of the mother who is, a little squirrely, um, which I think is yeah. also a scientific term. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Katsuya comes home. Uh, Kazumi is, is in bed, basically catatonic. And <laughs> as he's with her, she dies. And there's a moment where we see, um, sort of the impression of, or, or the spirit of Takio, that that comes over um, uh, Katsuya, and a lo- a parallel to this, it's Kazumi uh, Kazumi's sister uh, Hitomi 
who is calling and saying like, Hey, I'm going to come to dinner and, and, you know, just making sure everybody's there. And, you know, do you need me to bring wine to the cursed house when I come and that kind of thing. And so we have, um, Katsuya basically forces Hitomi away when she shows up, even though this is post, I have found my wife catatonic and now dead upstairs. And you can see him going back and forth between, you know, obviously the Katsuya that we kind of know in the movie, like none of these characters are terribly deep. Uh, you know, it's not that kind of movie where we're just right. following the characters and learning about all their life and loves and whatnot. Um, but we see that there are these waves where he kind of expresses the rage of Takio. And ultimately he gets, uh, he gets dead. Um, and now the curse is, let's see. Hold on, let me, let me check my notes because the chronology is all over the place. Okay. So, um, so he dies, then his sister Hitomi goes to uh, her office, or is at her office, and starts to to see some weird stuff. <laughs> Firstly, in the bathroom, um, where Kyoko uh, sort of appears out of a stall. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty rocking. I, like, anytime <laughs> you can put a, a ghost in a bathroom and actually make it work and not be laughable, my, you know, I doff my cap. Um, that is tough. And I think that scene really works. I think it is actually real creepy. Um, yes. And, and you know what? You talk about laughable. There's nothing to be laughed at. I don't think in this whole series at all. It's as serious as it gets. Yeah. Certainly not in this movie. Like this is not a movie you would call funny, uh, at any point. I mean, there are moments that, you know, uh, you can enjoy maybe ironically like the cat scene. Um, right. Right. But, Eh, you know, even that it it's just it like it just generates such a mood um, that it's hard it's hard not to be terrified by it. And I I think Shimizu is right in not um, you know peppering it with humor. That I, again, that's also a very Western thing. Like you watch most Japanese horror films, it, it, unless they are going for laughs, there's almost no jokes anywhere to be found. Yeah. Um, yeah, the ghost stories especially are they're all, they're played as straight as could be. Yeah, yeah, like uh, down down the line, we're going to get to like you know uh, Kudo Neko, and that is as somber a movie as you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. Um, but all right, so we've got we've got Hitomi in her office. Um, she ends up uh, sending like going to the security guard office in this building. The security guard. Uh, takes off to kind of check things out. And Hitomi is watching as the security guard is looking in. He's standing in a hallway and we see this all through a security camera. He's looking into a room and we see this kind of black cloud uh, that we assume is uh, Kiyako uh, envelop him and then he disappears. And Hitomi very wisely fucks off at this point. Um, because she has had it, she is done. Um, she rushes back to her place. And to me, this is the creepiest scene of the the film, I think. Uh, or it's the one that affects me the most is when we, I'm with you. Wow. I'm, I'm with you. That's great. Yeah. So when Hitomi is back home, um, she gets a call from Katsuya, her, um, 
and I, I'm always unclear if it's her brother or brother-in-law. I think it's her brother-in-law. Um, but he, he shows up uh, and is calling her and is like, hey, you know, I'm going to come by. What's your apartment number again? By the way, if a family member doesn't know where you where you live and uh, you have just seen a ghost in a bathroom, don't give them the address. Just, <laughs> just a rule of thumb. But she does. She makes that fatal mistake. And um, then she hears a knock at the door. She sees him uh, through the peephole, opens up the door, and no one's there. She sees him immediately. Yeah. <laughs> that always trips me out. Yeah. She's like, okay, what's the address? Or what's the apartment number? 7B or whatever. And then, okay, see you in a second or whatever. You know, hang up the phone. Literally three seconds later, ding dong. Yes. Also a big mayday. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but by this point, and, and this is the reason that I think Juan works so well, is that by this point, she's screwed. You know, like, even if she didn't answer the door, well, you know, we're going to find another way to you. It's just, it, it's this unrelenting and, and unavoidable d- death curse that you have uh, accrued that I think is is kind of terrifying. You know, it, it, it's just the idea of... Through no fault of your own, you're going to die horribly and terrified. That's heavy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's terrible. It is. It's yeah. a terrifying idea um, because in most, again, I'm comparing this to a lot of Western films, but you know, it, it, I think it's important to make cultural distinctions. Most Western films, like especially horror films, tend to be morality plays of one form or another. That, you know, uh, whether it's the slashers of the 80s, where if you do, you smoke the marijuana cigarettes or you uh, have premarital sex, then you get murdered for that. Um, or even something like Hellraiser, even, uh, where it's just you go you go searching for the forbidden thing and the forbidden thing is going to find you. Um, this is not the case here. This is just, hey, this looks like a nice house in which we could uh, live our lives and perhaps raise a family. Oh, no, we're all dead. Uh, and it's, right. yeah, it's, it, it really, it really shakes the foundations of what you think a horror movie should be in a lot of ways because there is no rhyme or reason. And I, I think some people respond negatively to that. You know, it doesn't fit the narrative that they, they have for, what a horror movie should be. Um, but as a bit of a nihilist myself, uh, I do really admire the fact that, you know, the, that Shimizu is basically saying like, Oh no, 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 you're just, there's no way to escape this. And it's not your fault. You're just going to die. Um, it could be anybody. All you have to do literally is set foot in the house that you could be, the paper boy coming to collect, you're done. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter who you are or what you did. You could be the nicest person in the world or the worst person in the world, and you will be murdered equally. Uh, <laughs> yep. And so back to Hitomi, though. So uh, uh, poor Hitomi um, is now in her apartment. She's starting to get uh, the weird phone calls where where we get the um, uh, – I, I almost don't know how to describe the sound. I'll, I'll play it here, but it is <laughs> – it is an eerie sound. It sounds like somebody choking, but it's it's a croak, I guess. That's a good call. It, yeah, I could, I could buy a croak. Yeah. yeah. 
but it's it's a really unsettling sound and and she's hearing this from her phone and finally she she makes the mistake of just going to bed and hiding under the covers <laughs> yeah the old the old classic safe place yeah it's totally understandable <laughs> and i uh and here's another thing i really admire about what shimizu does here it it's because it is the old thing you know it is the when you think of being scared, the idea of, especially as a kid, pulling the blanket over yourself to hide yourself from the monsters, it's, there seems to be something almost genetic about that of like, well, if they can't see me, I'm safe. Um, except, uh, Kayako, um, just climbs up the, the bed with her. And in probably my favorite moment of the, the movie overall is the, uh, whipping back the blanket and there she is, you know, all dark hair and pale makeup and all that just staring and croaking. And <laughs> it's horrifying. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> yes. It, it, it's amazing. Well, I'm just, uh, you and I, I have the exact same feel about that exact scene. It's always been the strongest, scariest scene for me in the entire film. So it's strange that we're doing the show together, and I mean, maybe others feel that way. It, it is a scary scene, but that, that you know, that's pretty wild because that scene's always resonated with me. I'm like, whoa, you know? Yeah, there, there's one other that I would put uh, in the running for the scariest scene of the movie, which happens when we get to the uh, Izumi scene. But yeah, I do, I do find this terrifying. Um, <laughs> So, which is probably good since I'm doing a show about it. Uh, right. So we then go to uh, Rika, um, who is sent by her boss uh, Hirohashi to. Uh, it, he's basically telling her, like, "Hey, there was this social worker that that was working with him. Um, we can't find him anymore, and he's presumably dead." Um, I mean, he doesn't say that, but as viewers, we're like, "Oh yeah, that guy's probably gone." Um, so Rika is, is hired or, or sent to, uh, the, the house of the, uh, Tokunagas who of course live in the, the former, uh, Saiki house. And, uh, so Rika shows up, uh, Sachi, the mother is in a state, the house is a mess and, uh, Rika like spends the day kind of cleaning up the house. Uh, no one else is around, but she's cleaning up the old woman and, and the mat that she was lying on and all that stuff, uh, which is a little gross, but you know, it's really the only gross out of the movie. And it's, you know, I don't think it's all that terrible. It's not like you see anything too crude, but there's definitely a stain and there's the implication that this woman's kind of been left alone and hasn't moved and, has has soiled the mat upon which she rests. Uh, but, uh, you know, Rika's a good girl. Um, you know, she is doing her level best. Once again, um, some sounds are coming from upstairs, and she sees a kid, and God bless him for finding this house, that has the little uh, panel cut into the wall above the stairs where little Toshio can can kneel down and just peek out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> from the top floor. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but so she hears uh, some stuff upstairs. Uh, Rika, you know, g- goes up to find a closet that has been taped shut. And another mayday: if you ever are in a house that appears to have been abandoned, 
and one of the uh, sliding door closets has been taped shut, you just leave it taped shut. <laughs> yeah, I will have to agree with that. Uh, but she does not take uh, our wise advice. She opens up uh, the closet, peels the tape off, opens it up, and there we have the Black Cat Mar, who is, um, I, I have seen it described as Toshio's uh, familiar, that when you see the cat, you're going to see Toshio. And and sure enough, that's what happens. Like, she sees the cat, and then she looks up, and there's uh, Toshio uh, just, you know, uh, huddled in the top of the closet looking creepy as, as hell. Uh, which is really all he does in this movie is just stand around, look creepy, and occasionally meow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yep. that's all he needs to do. <laughs> yeah. In fairness, we don't need more out of you, Toshio. You're you're doing the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, from there, uh, you know, Rika is reaching out. She's trying to figure out who this kid is, what's going on, and um, she she ends up calling Hirohashi. Um, and then she sees, uh, she's trying to get some information out of, of Sachi, who is staring up at the ceiling in, in what you might call terror and saying, like, I told them, I told them, you know, release me. And she looks up and there's, uh, Kayako. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. It's, and, and then she passes out. Uh, not, not Sachi. She basically dies. And uh, Enrica passes out. So uh, Hirohashi um, finds Rika, contacts the police, and there we get two detectives, uh, Nakagawa and Igarashi. Um, they they end up exploring the house, and they find the bodies of Katsuya and Kazumi in the attic, which uh, we learn later. This is where um, the bodies of uh, Taiko and uh, Kayako are found. Yeah, Toshio. Toshio. I'm sorry. You're right. Toshio. Yeah, it, it's easy to uh, – you're doing a fantastic job with these names so far. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, bound, that's bound to happen with all these names. Right, right. So so it's Toshio and Kayako uh, who are found in the attic. And, and that kind of goes back to the cyclical nature of the film itself. You know, that it's just this constant repetition of the events that spawned the curse um, or the uh, the onryo um, that it just continues to repeat itself. You know, it's just this savage cycle of, of death uh, surrounding this house. Yeah, yeah, it just keeps going on and on. It's scary. Yeah. So the the detectives then find um, the security guard. When they're they're because they have at this point found out that Hitomi has gone missing, so they're kind of investigating that along with you know the presumed murders in the house. And um, a quick side note here: uh, let me let me pull his name while I, while I'm thinking about this. Otherwise, uh, I'm just going to sound like a damn fool. Uh, the the guy who plays one of the attendants um, at uh, the the social uh, the social welfare place where Rika works is um, Hideo Sakaki, who is, you know, the titular, not titular, but the, uh, uh, is called the man in verses. Uh, it's a real bit part. It's kind of a blink and you'll miss him sort of thing, but he pops up twice in the movie. And at the first time uh, he popped up when I was watching on this viewing, I was like, Oh yeah, 
that's the the villain of verses in you know a part that lasts for about five minutes more than I'm in the movie, but. You know, I thought it was cool. Just a, a, a nice little, again, this is an impress your friends sort of a bit of information. Uh, so if you have friends that are easily impressed by your knowledge of Japanese horror films, this is one to lay on them. Uh, that the, the villain of Versus is also in Juan. Um, anyway. That's, and you know that because you very recently watched Versus. Yes. So th- this episode immediately follows the Versus episode. So it is not an intentional theme that we are just doing uh, Hideo Sakaki films <laughs> in, in all their forms. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of a nice little thread. Uh, so our man uh, Hideo is, you know, holding it down for us in Juan as well. And a boy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's the mascot. He kind of is. He, and we'll just say it. Hideo Sakaki is the official mascot of Hero Hero Go Show. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Um, as uh, Nakagawa and Igarashi, or Igarashi um, are investigating this, they also realize that there is a detective who investigated this house before named Toyama. And Toyama. Um, who has at the time at the chronology where, where in we are now, um, is uh, a father. He has a, a daughter named Izumi and, um, the, the detectives come to ask him if he knows anything more about this house and, and you know, what, what do you know? What's going on? That kind of thing. So they, they uh, impress upon uh, Toyama the importance of him uh, assisting them. He ends up going to the police station where he sees the video of uh, the security guard that uh, Hitomi saw get got. And he watches that video only now. Um, this almost negative impression or negative visual of uh, Kiyako is walking down the hallway towards the camera and then everything goes black. And then all of a sudden eyes open up and it is, uh, it is also an intensely creepy moment. Yeah, it's great. And it just goes to show you what, what she's capable of Kayako. She can mess with him anytime she wants to, any way she wants to. And she takes the chance right there to do it. There's her opportunity. And, there she goes, and that that scene, that 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 that's more scary stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's real. Like when I watched it again, I I, I primed myself for the experience by you know turning out the lights and you know settling back on the couch and and really getting into it. And it's such a creepy movie, and this is one of the creepier scenes. And it's weird, you know, we were talking earlier about you not wanting to get things spoiled for yourself. I think this is a movie that's tough to spoil because even though we're walking through the plot and, you know, I I always tell people, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, watch it before you listen to the show because you're going to be more familiar. And as we're talking about it and kind of goofing on it a little bit, you're going to know the source material far better. But in this case, I mean, you certainly should see Juwan, but also the moments that are frightening are frightening because of the tension that is being built. And even if you know what's coming, because you most certainly do, you, you still are along for the ride. You can't help, but feel that tension. I mean, I've seen Juan probably seven, eight times at this point, and I still get creeped out at it. Um, you know, it, me too. Me too. I've seen it probably 20 times or more. I've seen it a lot. 
and it, it hasn't, you know, it, it still has that effect on me. So, and we're talking about it chronologically. So anybody listening, we could talk all we want about it. When they go and watch it, they're going to see it out of order, and it's it's not going to matter, you know, exactly what we talked about. Yeah. It's almost like. You know, they have a little a little background that we're giving them now. But when if they're lucky enough to be watching it for the first time, it's still going to be a you know a good experience, a great experience. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this chronologically, almost to say like, here's the roadmap for the movie. So if you're watching it for the first time or just watching it again, and always thought like this movie doesn't make any sense, it really does. It's just carved up in a way that makes it seem a little more nonsensical than I think it really is. Let me ask you a question. Yes. How many times did it take for you to make sense of it? How many views? I, I It took uh, the first two, three times I watched it. I loved it so much that I didn't, I just basically gave it that excuse because, you know, with some Asian cinema and with Italian and others, the narrative isn't what we're used to. It's like, you know, we've been talking about, it's not like, you know, Western world movies. This is not what we're accustomed to see. But when I saw that the first few times, I just said, you know what? It, it does. It doesn't matter to me. It's, it's like a dream sequence. I basically gave it a pass and gave it an excuse. Didn't care because I enjoyed it so much anyway. And the more I watched it. And then when I saw more of the first two, it made a lot more sense, and then here we are. But how long did it take you to, to piece it together? You know, it was probably my third viewing where I was kind of determined, like, by God, I'm going to figure this thing out. <laughs> and, yeah, and now that I kind of know where all this fits chronologically, it's it's a more satisfying viewing, but I don't know that it's any more or less frightening. You know, and, and in fact, I think maybe the first couple of times you see it, uh, sort of the inscrutability of the narrative, um, which was my college band, inscrutability of narrative, um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that makes it feel a little more, um, unnerving because you can't ever get your bearing. You know, it's not like, oh, okay, now we've jumped forward a bunch of years, which we're about to do. Uh, in the narrative. Um, instead, it just happens all over the place. And it's almost the uh, the Matthew McConaughey description of time from True Detective of just this swirling mass of events that happens all at once. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's it, it's not that it's impenetrable. It's just presented in a way to be as disorienting as possible. Um, but I think it works, you know, I don't, I don't fault the movie for that. And although a lot of people do, um, but yeah, yeah. So, but let, all right, let's get back to Toyama cause, uh, our man Toyama, God bless him. This <laughs> is a guy who at least has a plan. Right. So after seeing this video, he's like, you know what? I'm about to burn this fucker down. <laughs> like let's I, I can't say for sure this is gonna stop it, but but we're gonna try. Well he's the last man standing. Yeah. That's his whole thing. His whole crew got wiped out. Yeah, right. So he knows what's up, you know? Yeah, and after seeing the video, it's like son of a bitch, she's back. I'm never gonna be free. Let's do this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he shows up at the house with a couple of big ass uh jugs of gasoline and is whipping that around. 
And then he starts hearing voices upstairs, which we later learn is a glimpse into the future. But he actually, he sees a, a girl, uh, like a high school girl, come down the stairs in, uh, you know, the traditional Japanese schoolgirl outfit. And they lock eyes for a second, and then she takes off. And later we understand that this is a moment where father and daughter see one another. But that happens later. Uh, so while he's doing this... Um, and Kayako starts coming down the stairs and in, in terribly creepy fashion and also clearly cribbed from the exorcist, but who cares? It, right. it totally works. And actually there is also an element of traditional Japanese dance in that movement. Um, and I, uh, I don't remember the name of the dance, but there is, there is something that, uh, simulates that kind of jerky movement. Um, that is, is traditional to the culture. Wow. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. That's what I'm here for, sir. Uh, right. Well, I'll tell you what, how about, let me tell you something that sake, you know, that, that, that scene where Izumu, the girl drinks the sake and spits it out. Yes. They mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that the reason that happens is explained in, uh, I want to say curse Two. that, that harkens back to, uh, it's a whole thing in curse Two. Uh, involving the sake, where there's a, a realtor and her brother, and the, uh, the how, how do I explain it? It's hard to explain the whole thing. Bottom line is that that's one of the things that when you watch Curse One and Two will make more sense to you. All right, cool. I, I like I, I always feel like as I'm watching this movie that I, I I it does feel now that I'm watching a sequel to something. Uh, because there, there are these characters that certainly feel like they have a backstory, especially Toyama and, uh, Izumi. Um, so the other detectives though, uh, Nakagawa and, uh, Igarashi show up and, uh, Toyama has scattered some gasoline around, but when, uh, Kiyako is coming down the stairs, he takes off the other two detectives who have brought him in on the case do not. And, uh, they get, uh, Kiyako'd. Yeah. Yeah. They get God already. (laughs) (laughs) So so from this point, um, we jump forward quite a bit in time, like several years, uh, will pass because now, um, we're back to, to Rika and, uh, Mariko, uh, who's her friend? Mariko is a, a school teacher. Uh, Rika is still working um, in the, uh, the the social work field. Um, she has surprisingly not been done in yet, but this just speaks to the idea of like, well, it's maybe it's not going to happen today or tomorrow, but eventually it's going to happen. Yeah, but they've been messing with her hard. You see that one scene where they both show up to her when she's in bed. It's almost reminiscent of. What happens earlier? Yes, with, uh, uh, with Hitomi, and th- yes. this is the scene with the cat. So let's 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 freeze here because it is maybe <laughs> as far as a single image goes. If you want to know what Juan is like, um, it is Toshio sitting on the end of uh, her bed, like uh, the 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 smart monkey from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> with, 
<laughs> You're right. <laughs> with, with black cats all around. And and this is one of those moments where uh, Shimizu was like, all right, let, let's put in about four live cats and four or five stuffed cats to give the impression that there are more than there are because we don't want to spend all day chasing these cats around. <laughs> so, so, And also they're probably fighting and peeing everywhere. Uh, so, um, so it's just a bunch of cats and the stuffed cats are kind of adorable uh, they, they look clearly like stuffed animals which is kind of great <laughs> yeah that's cool and, <laughs> and then there's uh, Kayako standing at the head of the bed leaning over and staring down into Rika's face as she's lying on the bed staring up and if that ever happened to me I like the heart attack I would have would have to catch up with the explosion of fluids from my body. <laughs> like I I would be dead three different ways before Toshio or Kayako had any chance to touch me. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing that she went through that and lived. Yeah. Yeah. But she, um, she is resilient. Um, another scene, we're going to, jump all over the place like the film itself but i forgot to mention this when we were talking about the scene with uh hitomi um when she's in uh the building the office building and is riding the elevator uh this oh yeah the, the elevator has uh glass windows so you can see the floors as you pass and in each one she passes is toshio looking into the elevator up at her and and it's every floor. It is one of the creepier things in the movie as well. Um, it's oh, uh-huh. yeah, man, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It is. It that's just this movie. It it's either going to resonate with you or it isn't. Because I know some people they just don't get it. They just don't like it. They don't feel it. But for those of you that that do, I mean, you know, it's you know, it, it's out of control. You're like, oh man, it's no, forget that. You know? Yeah, I mean, the the movie is either a bunch of nonsense to you, or it's one of the scariest things you ever saw. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I've learned over the years, because I've been praising it for, for years. I've been loud and proud on podcasts, everywhere else, and I've talked to people that I'm good friends with that just, no, it doesn't do anything for them. And I'm like, wow, but I guess that's just horror. I, I guess what scares you scares you, and it might not scare the next guy. It's just the way it is. It's... You know, yeah. it's very subjective. What scares you? It, it's like what makes you laugh. It, it absolutely is. Um, it, you know, I, I always I do the same thing. I compare it to a sense of humor. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those movies. If it hits you right, it, it's sort of like the movie Wreck for me. Like oh, yeah. Wreck and uh, Juan are two films that just bother me at my core. Um, and but I love it for that, you know. I like <laughs> it's so rare that I can get scared in a movie, and Juan still has the power not not necessarily at this point to scare me down to the bones like maybe it did the first time I saw it, but it's still a very unsettling experience to watch the movie. Yeah, and you respect the hell out of it. That's what it is, because because it had that effect on you. Yeah, and it's also a movie that I I try to pick apart and and try to figure out. It, it's like having someone explain to you how to tell a joke. You know, it's like how did Shimizu manage to make me feel like this in this scene? Like, wh- how is he moving the camera? Like, what angles is he using? What colors, you know, is he using? And it it really is a, a minor miracle 
uh, because Shimizu didn't have a whole lot of money to make, you know, any of the Juan films up until this one, or until the American film, really. Um, but he just does so much with it. Um, and all right. So, so, uh, Mariko or, uh, yeah, Mariko is, she thinks she's going to a house to figure out why, um, her, one of her students hasn't come to class. And, uh, we realize that it is, uh, Toshio that she thinks is the missing student. And in my mind, my, my interpretation of this, at least, is this is Kayako in a very roundabout way coming back for Rika. Um, by going through her friend. And there's a scene where they meet up at a, a, a restaurant and they're just kind of chatting and, you know, talking about how, uh, Mariko has turned into a real school marm and, uh, Rika, uh, senses something under the table and looks under there and Toshio's under the table. Cause why wouldn't he be? Of course. <laughs> and just holding it like sitting all squat and holding his, his knees and, and looking creepy. Um, <laughs> so once, uh, once Rika makes the connection that, uh, Mariko, is going to the, the the house of the curse to try to find this kid. She takes off to save her, but of course it's too late. Um, because you know, nothing good ever happens in this movie to anybody. <laughs> no, sir. And that is a callback. The teacher thing to, uh, the original Juan, the exact same thing happens. And oh, man, I, I got, you got to see these movies, but, uh, just talking about it, it gets me excited thinking about it. But part one starts off that way, where a teacher goes to the house, to the Juan house, I guess we'll call it. And, and at this point, his student is Toshio, and he goes to the house for the same reason that this girl goes to the house, because he hasn't shown up at school. But in, in, in The Curse, he, you know, it's a recent thing. But in this, he, apparently he was registered for class and has never once shown up for school, and we know why. We know why he hasn't shown up. Why he's registered, I guess that's Kayako's work. But that, that's where they got that from. He, that, that's lifted right from the curse. Yeah, I, I I do need to see this. But, yeah, I mean, that's always been my impression is that this is just, you know, uh, Kayako just screwing with people. Because um, <laughs> she's having fun. Yeah, as much, as much <laughs> fun as a doom spirit uh, cursed to kill others for eternity can. I, I know, <laughs> yeah. At a certain point, I guess you get, you know, like what's going to get you off is uh, just tormenting people. And that, that seems to be the case. Uh, <laughs> she makes the most of it. You can say that. Yeah. Yeah. She's, you know, A for effort, Kayako. <laughs> you're, you're, you are definitely putting your all into it. Um, <laughs> That's for sure. Um, as seen in the scene with Rika, when we get uh, Kayako crawling down the stairs again. Oof, man. And which is an incredibly creepy image. Yes, it's script from the exorcist, but, but Shimizu makes it his own. I, I would argue, um, it, it is a great, great moment in the movie. Uh, anytime it happens, like even in the, uh, Sadako, uh, versus Kayako, uh, trailer that is certainly featured. Um, but, and I can't believe that's a thing, but I'm so happy about it. So am I. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen, I, I just posted up on uh, the Facebook group page, but there is a, a silence your cell phones teaser, um, that they have done using those two characters. 
Really? Yeah, it's sort of a like, hey, go to the concession stand and, and by the way, turn off your cell phones. But it's those two. And Toshio. So it's it's fantastic. You gotta see. Is it a trailer? It's not a trailer. It's like a bumper that they use before the movies. Okay, well then I will watch it. I don't watch trailers at all. Yeah. So and I especially wouldn't for this movie, but that I'll look at. I, I avoided it because, you know, just because I said earlier, I'm really uptight about trailers. I'm one of those guys I'm about spoilers. It's, so, uh, but I got to see that now. Yeah, it, it, it's very kind of tongue in cheek to use these characters because you see them eating popcorn and stuff. And like, uh, what? Really? Yeah, and like Sadako <laughs> is doing a little dance. It's it's interesting, but it's it's so wonderfully absurd. Uh, is it the same Kayako or no? I believe it is. I believe it's the same actress. Obviously, Toshio's all grown up, but yeah, um, right. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think I think the actress is the same. I'd have to I'd have to look that up. I don't know that for sure, but um, because she didn't do the Grudge Three, the American, she did her and Toshio did every single movie, the four Juans and the two Americans. It was all it was the same director and, and the same antagonist. But when when it came to Juan Three, which was a direct to, to DVD one in the states, it was none of that. Of course, it wasn't Toshio. He was you know far too old, and, and it was a different Kayako. So I didn't know if she was done with it completely or what. I can confirm now. It is in fact uh, the actress's name is uh, Takako Fuji. Mm-hmm. Um, she is uh, Kayako in uh, Sadako versus Kayako. Uh, I'm so happy. Yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, <That's cool>. So, <laughs> thank uh, you for that information. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Um, okay, so let's see. Wait, I, I lost my place in my chronology. Hang on, here we go. Uh, oh, it was about the uh, the whole thing about the oh, the girl being the teacher. Yeah, yeah. See, you damn, you're good with the names because I, I couldn't just I, I can pronounce them. I just can't remember it, you know, with all the characters. I know Rika. Yeah. And her name is, starts with an M. Yeah. Mariko is the the teacher who's dead at this point. Like Rika sees Kayako coming down the stairs. Right. And then she has the weird flash where it's like she's covering her face and it's the way everyone's covered their face. And the interpretations of this have kind of flown around. The one that I tend to hold to is that this is Rika understanding that she is now part of this cycle, you know, and up to and including like seeing, uh, looking in the mirror and seeing Kayako staring back at her. And then Kayako emerges from her, from, uh, from her blouse. And, uh, then, and, and we also at this point, uh, like it's the end of the movie. It's not the end of the chronology. Um, the end of the movie kind kind of takes place here with Rika, who it was sort of the character that frames the film. Like we see her, for, it's her story first, and then uh, the the final story is uh, Kayako. Um, and we get the impression, and this goes back. I I know for a fact this goes back to the first film because the impression that you get is that the actual malevolent force isn't necessarily Kiyako. It's her husband, uh, Taeko. Uh, as we see him come down the stairs in all the, you know, blood splattered wife beater shirt and all that. Right. Um, and then, uh, Rika is, is pretty much done. Um, she is, uh, <laughs> 
we we understand via a news report that she has been killed. Yeah, yes, that was clever of them. They just kind of threw it in there. Yeah. So so mm-hmm. uh, the one character that survived maybe the longest uh if you uh, Izumi probably survived a, a little bit longer. But uh but yeah, Rika uh gets got uh at the end and um then we chronologically speaking again um we get the information that Toyama has died at some point and we now pick up with his daughter Izumi and she is she had gone into the house house with some friends of hers that are now missing and she bailed on them when things got scary uh but she did enter the house so she screwed and we understand also that, oh, yeah, there was this moment that's this weird blending of time where she saw her father in the house as uh, as a teenager versus a little girl, which she would have been at the time the scene took place, uh, if that makes sense. Um, we're, we're going to have to have like a diagram of like, okay, so here's Izumi as a child and now she's a, a teenager in high school. But so her friends, uh, Izumi's friends are, um, you know, are a little worried about their friend because she, she seems a little morose. Um, they're trying, they, they find out that there are no pictures of her on the, like the big social wall, uh, at their school. And they're asking why. And um, also she, at, at a certain point, just becomes a bit of a hermit and is in her bedroom. Uh, her friends come to visit her, not the ones who disappeared, but her new friends, uh, Chiharu and, uh, oh, what is the other girl's name? It's going to drive me crazy. Um, I remember Chiharu, uh, surprisingly, but I think that's the only one I remember. It's Chiharu and uh, Miyuki. And right. Chiaro nice. and Miyuki are, are her new friends. And, um, and there's actually a line when they're in the house, uh, when Izumi is in the house with her, her old friends who are disappeared, where when she takes off, you can hear them talking upstairs. And one of them says like, Oh, she's been hanging around Chiaro too much. Right. And which is a great little, like, Oh, God, Shimizu, you're so, so good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, they come to visit her at home and she's looking a little, uh, a little, uh, fallow. She is pale. She has, uh, dark circles under her eyes and she has put newspaper over all the windows. Um, and she basically says like, I'm being watched. They're trying to, they're trying to find me. They can, they're trying to, to look in at me. And her friends are like, she has gone bonkers. Uh, but they also happen to pick up the negatives of the photographs uh, for, you know, the school uh, functions. You know, obviously they were taken by a photographer who's taking pictures for the high school. And um, both Izumi and her two friends, anytime you see them in a picture, they have black hollowed out eyes. Uh, which is a nice effect. Kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Shudder, which is uh, an, another movie I really love. Mm, absolutely, um, yeah. And so uh, we pick up with Izumi, and she wakes up one morning uh, to find that there are newspapers kind of torn away that are on the ground. And um, <laughs> so she 
ends up blasting open the curtains, and sure enough, there are the dead friends staring in at her, looking very pale as well. Um, it turns out being uh, an Onryo uh, or a vengeful spirit is not good for your complexion. You come across as being a, a bit, uh, a bit, a bit pale, a bit, yeah, a, bit a little pasty, little yeah, little fair skinned. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the next thing you know, they're in the house. She's running away from them. Um, she's and let me just say, Japanese uh, apartments and homes, uh, th- their construction is not built for keeping ghosts out. Uh, <laughs> right. They're almost inviting them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all sliding doors and stuff. It's like, well, this doesn't help anybody. Um, <laughs> right. You know, um, I'm, there's actually a, a manga I'm reading uh, now called I Am a Hero, um, which is a, a, a zombie apocalypse story where it's a, a manga artist. Um, who is in a, uh, a zombie apocalypse of sorts. And he is, he is a hero only because, uh, he is the only person around that has a shotgun. Uh, it, it's a really good book, but, um, it, it, when I was watching this again, it reminded me of, of that comic, uh, because there's a lot of scenes in that of him trying to barricade, um, you know, doors and stuff like that. And it just, it never works out because of the way that you can just slide a thing open eventually. Um, and the mother mentions that the father did the same thing before he went. Yes. Before he got got by Kyoko. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well remembered. Um, so, uh, it, she ends up, uh, does, um, in the, the part of their home that has sort of the, um, the, the ancestral hearth, hearth, um, you know, the shrine, uh, if you will. And she is backing towards it away from her former friends who are kind of creep showing her. Um, <laughs> it's the, uh, uh, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> the, the dancing and the, and the lady from creep show. Mm-hmm. It's that if you could hold your breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, but it's that kind of shuffling walk that they're making towards her. Totally. There's ghosts, but they're kind of like zombified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she backs towards the shrine, and who's in the shrine? I'll be damned. It's Kayako. Uh, and she, uh, another great scene where she kind of mm-hmm. reaches her hands out of the shrine and grabs uh, Izumi by the head and jerks her back into the shrine into some weird negative zone like Superman. And <laughs> the, the last shot of this segment you see is of Izumi and uh, Toyama's face floating in, against darkness in inside the shrine. Uh, again, two more spirits doomed for eternity. Um, it's straight up creepy. It really is. And, th- Man. and this was the other scene in the movie. Like the first time I saw it, the girls looking in the, the window at her really messed me up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so terrifying. Yeah. That's something else. Man. And that's the only time that Kayako ever used anyone else to, to do her dirty work. Well, in fairness, she does her own dirty work. She's just using them to herd. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, <laughs> She recruited them for assistance. Right. That's what she did. <laughs> right. Like, she gets the points, but they get the assist for sure. 
Oh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, this is actually the the chrono- chronological end of the movie. Um, again, as, as we've mentioned all through this, this movie is told all out of order. In fact, uh, very quickly, the uh, order of the film, the chapters are uh, Rika. Um, uh, hold on, let me get my notes here. Okay, Rika Katsura, uh, Katsura rather, Katsuya. God damn. Uh, Hitomi, uh, Toyama, Izumi, and Kayako are the are the six chapters of the film. Um, and before we move on to interpretation and impressions and that kind of stuff, anything else you want to say about the narrative of this movie other than it's kind of weird the first time you watch it, but hopefully this will be a bit of a, uh, a cliff's notes, if you will, to what the actual narrative is. Yeah, you said it. This uh, people that are listening to this that have not watched the movie. Um, I'm all, I'm almost jealous of that because now when they go in, it'll be it'll make much more sense i mean no matter what the movie's great and it's gonna either you're gonna feel it or you're not but because we've done this here and we've done you know discussed it chronologically uh they have an advantage that you know like i said it took me it took us like three times to to figure this out so they're gonna know it hopefully hopefully they'll have it figured out the first time even even then watching it's a whole other thing then i could remember everything we said on the show but still Cliff Notes is a good way to good way to put it, and, and bravo to you for even coming up with the idea to do it chronologically. Because, it, to my knowledge, I've listened to a few podcasts because I'm obsessed with this series, and no one I think has discussed it this way. So, yeah, we, we've done our listeners. You've done the listeners a big favor by doing it this way. That's uh, that's what we strive for here, Dave. Is edutainment. <laughs> uh, See. He loves you, listeners. He loves you. (laughs) All right. I do, too. (laughs) While we're on the subject of ghosts, let's do a quick stroll down Japanese Ghost Lane, which involves traditional folklore, theater, and my personal favorite, funeral rites. The Japanese traditionally refer to the soul as reikon. When a person dies, the Raycon leaves the body and goes to purgatory, waiting for its loved ones to perform the necessary burial rites to join its ancestors in watching over the family. For the trouble of paying attention to a bunch of jerks who haven't bothered to die yet, the Raycon returns every August to be thanked during the Obon Festival. Obviously on this show, we're not too worried about Raycon, who managed to get the burial they deserve and spend their days watching their family like the most boring soap opera you ever saw. No, we're concerned with the Yurei which is what a Raycon becomes if they're not buried correctly or if they die suddenly and violently, or if they're under the influence of powerful emotions like love or jealousy or the need to know how Game of Thrones ends. I'm kidding, of course. Everyone knows Game of Thrones will never end. The Yurei have a link back to the physical world, unlike the Raycon, and spend their days on Earth haunting the shit out of their home or even a person. Also, the poorer you were in life, the more powerful a Yurei you're probably going to be. So, if you're behind on your student loans, at least you can take some consolation in the fact that, when you're dead, you'll get some juice to really haunt someone right. The Yurei fall into all kinds of categories. The Ubume are mothers who died in childbirth, a benevolent spirit that often brings candy to the children they left behind. Or maybe you died at sea, then you'd come back as a scaly fish person called a Funa Yurei. 
The aristocratic class get their own Yurei subset called the Goryo. Of course, they get their own. But the worst, the Onryo. Onryo are Yurei who were wronged in their life in one form or another. Way back in the mid-700s, yes, that's 700s, like the club, there were records of Onryo haunting or possessing people. Some were even rumored to be able to cause natural disasters, like earthquakes and famines. The only way to satisfy an Onryo is to bury them correctly, if that was a problem to begin with. Or, if you happen to be the target of an Onryo, you pretty much have to die. Juan uses this type of Onryo with a real bummer of a twist. The Onryo is seeking vengeance against an already dead husband, who also happens to be an Onryo. It's Onryo Mania! As we discussed, the Onryo, which, by the way, is also what Sadako from Ringu was, has a rich tradition in regards to their appearance. Rarely are Onryo men, usually women dressed in the traditional funereal white kimono or dress with pale skin and blue-tinged eyes. Their hair is long and dark and unkempt. Kabuki theater often portrayed these Onryo in this manner, and the long, dark, wild hair is often attributed to this origin due to the fact that the Kabuki formers use long, dark wigs during these performances. Alternately, some suggest that the characteristic hair comes from the fact that women traditionally wore their hair up, until, that is, they were dead, in which case they were often arranged with their hair down. Regardless of the true origin, if indeed it wasn't some happy marriage of the two ideas, the Onryo's appearance is consistent both historically and in modern horror films. So when you hear someone complain that all the ghosts in Asian horror movies look alike, you tell them of the rich history of Kabuki and Onryo, and then tell them to shut their traps for good measure. You don't need that kind of negativity in your life. Too much of that, well... Couple of things I'm going to pitch at you here, Dave. Uh, first of all, uh, we've talked about this a, a bit on the show prior to, but a lot of these movies came out of the fact that the Japanese studio system had pretty much collapsed at this point. Um, actually, prior to this, uh, but the studios really served as distribution arms. They didn't really fund movies. So the movies themselves were funded independently by uh, various production companies and so forth. And, you know, a lot of the big studios like Toho is the one everyone knows. Um, Toho really didn't sink a lot of money into making these movies. They just put them out. Um, the real market for these movies was on DVD. And it has been argued that the structure of this movie was specifically designed with DVD in mind. Namely, that each of the chapters of the film, uh, you know, the, the name chapters like, you know, Kyoko and Izumi and, and so forth, um, would be the chapters on the DVD. And that each of these chapters has basically a mini story to tell that ends in a big scare. So you didn't necessarily have to watch the movie in order. You could just watch the chapter you liked. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, very clever on the part of Shimizu. But again, a lot of these movies were being geared towards the home video market, which was far more profitable and far more... Um, Lenient isn't quite the right word. A little bit more free in terms of the kinds of material you could produce. 
uh, for example, Audition comes out of this as well, where the studios probably never would have given Miike the money to make Audition for its content. <laughs> right. But, you know, it was independently produced, and then Miike took it to the studios, and they were like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Um, and that was, uh, this comes from that similar time, although uh, a, a, just a, a tad later. Um, another thing that, uh, I would point out, uh, that, you know, we discussed actually in the, uh, the informative piece of the show is that the appearance, uh, Dave, and I'm going to give you a little pop quiz. Do you know whereupon, uh, the, the appearance of, uh, Kiyako and Toshio and all the ghosts, where that comes from? My guess is Japanese folklore of some type because we see it in, in movies prior, kind of. But that, that I'm going to guess that's what it is. It very close, very close. Um, it it does come from from folklore. The um, onryo or the vengeful spirits are are the actual theme uh, or the actual creatures that we're seeing in this movie, even if they're not called onryo specifically. But it actually stems from kabuki. Oh, okay. I can see that. That uh, there were stories that involved the Onryo in Kabuki Theater, and to it, it was sort of a visual shorthand. Like, if you saw a character appear that was painted very white, had uh, particularly the long, dark hair also comes from this, um, that as soon as you saw this figure show up, usually dressed in uh, all in white, like uh, Kayako is, um, that that told the audience immediately, oh, this is a spirit. And that was brought into the films. Uh, so it actually, it has its roots way back in, in traditional, you know, Japanese ghost stories, uh, you know, from hundreds, if not thousands of years before. And then that was brought into Kabuki where the, the face paint and the white dress and the long black hair was incorporated to sort of convey to the audience, this is the character you're dealing with. And then that was brought into the films. So this tradition of the, like, you know, Sadako is, is another uh, great example of this, of the white dress, long black hair, very pale, um, usually very distinct eye makeup as well. Um, all that comes from a very, very long tradition uh, in Japanese culture, it's not just, hey, wouldn't this be a creepy image for the movies? Wow. That makes complete sense, because when I think of the kabuki, uh, of course, you think of the white face. So, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, yeah, down to the wardrobe. And that's I think that's the part that kind of blew me away was that it's not just even the makeup. It's even what they're dressed in. And you can see this throughout Japanese films of the white dress and the long black hair. It's, um, you know, on the one hand, being a Westerner, that's really intriguing and surprising to me. Although I suppose if I were uh, Japanese, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen it a million times. Um, <laughs> but it totally works. It's such a great striking image. And, you know, of course, they had hundreds of years to perfect it, too. So <laughs> well done, Japan. Right, right. Um, another thing that um, I want to get to is a, kind of a deeper cultural perspective of this film, which is this movie is kind of born on the backs of the 1990s in Japan. At that time, the economy was in a bit of a freefall. 
Um, they had uh, an economic bubble that had burst. Um, things were getting tougher in Japan, um, which led to what? <laughs> all right, how how to say this without sounding judgmental? There is not a uh, quite the same view of domestic abuse in Japan as there is in the West. In fact, um, for a long time, there wasn't a native word for domestic abuse. It, uh, it was sort of understood that your husband might beat you. Um, and this, this isn't, you know, <laughs> decades or hundreds of years ago. This is very modern. And it's only very recently that you've had more of a push towards like a traditional nuclear family that the West understands of sort of equal partners. And, and it, it goes back to just the way that women in general are viewed in Japan and their roles in the family. Um, so there's not the same stigma um, or <laughs> there wasn't the same stigma attached to a husband beating his wife uh, as there is in the West. And so the, the violence that you see, um, on the part of Kyoko's husband isn't necessarily something that would be unfamiliar or even necessarily all that uncomfortable to a male viewer in Japan. Um, but whereas in the like fifties and sixties, a lot of those traditional ghost stories that always involve a, not always, but most of the time involve a woman who has been murdered or raped and murdered or abandoned and died or whatever and comes back as a vengeful spirit. This comes out of that tradition, but it also starts to very poignantly incorporate this idea of the abuse of spouse. And and there, the traditional uh, family, uh, as it was once perceived in Japan, which, which was called Ie, uh, which is, you know, the very, um, very stoic male, very controlled male, doesn't let their emotions get the best of them. Uh, the very submissive female and that a lot of times explosions of violence that were now being reported in Japan as, you know, women's liberation kind of slowly made its way into, into that culture and more women started to stand up and say like, no, 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 this is kind of bullshit. Um, it's still a problem actually in Japan there. It, it, I think the, the statistic I read was that as of the nineties, uh, the estimate was about 30% of men in the country beat their wives. Wow. Yeah. It's a staggering number. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so a lot of the interpretation of this film comes from the idea that Shimizu is looking at this breakdown of the traditional uh, Japanese family unit and the evolution into something else. And, and there's a lot of that in Japanese horror cinema of the idea of a country that had a very strict identity, was very isolated from the rest of the world, had its own traditions and cultures. Then all of a sudden it opens up to not just the West, but even it's, you know, it, brothers and, and sisters in, in the Pacific and, you know, you look at films in South Korea uh, that come out of that culture and they feel much more Western uh, because, you know, there was a very clear Western influence. It turns out America was in Korea for a while in the 50s. 
Um, and they're in some of that bled into the culture, uh, not so much in Japan. Um, and in fact, it was only in the mid nineties that Japanese films and arts were really allowed into South Korea. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, it turns out that in, uh, the, the mid forties, Japan got a little froggy with their neighbors. Just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Safe to say. (laughs) Yeah. And and so South Korea had a ban on Japanese culture for 50 years. Wow. Yeah. So it was a very isolated culture. And and what I'm getting at is that there is an uncomfortable conversation going on in in Juon that you don't necessarily need to pay attention to to enjoy the movie. But the movie isn't just a straight scare movie the way a lot of people seem to interpret it. I I don't think, um, I think that the, the fact that this movie is coming after us, this economic collapse and the, the, the view in Japan was that if you were lower on the socioeconomic ladder, you were probably more likely to commit acts of domestic abuse. And that this is a, like, Juan is a film that, in a very slight way, is touching on these subjects. That the vengeful woman spirit isn't just, um, you know, a character that is there to represent the, the docile female made powerful, but instead is much more about the, the horror of the violent male in the home. And that it's because of this abuse that uh, Tayako um, exhibits and and ultimately uh, enacts that this is the origin of of the real curse. Um, you know. Well, judging by this movie, just this movie, uh, absolutely, I see what you're saying. But if you see the curse one, it, all you got to see is the first curse. There is not that murder is justified. But there is a reason why all this takes place. In other words, Kayako is doing something she, you know a, a wife shouldn't be doing. It wasn't just a he's been continuously abusing her and he just kills her one day. There's a whole backstory to it. But judging by this movie alone, yes, I, I completely feel it. And he kills his kid and cat, which is come on, sure. Who, who the hell? Who does that? Right. There's no excuse for any of it. But and uh, something else in one of the later sequels. And I want to say it came out in 14. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, they they play around with the mythology of the series, and they they actually made Kayako abusive towards uh, Takeo. Really? Yeah, I don't know why they did that. I didn't like it, because there's four other movies that follow the original four. The series goes on, but it's not Shimizu's, but they're still Juan movies. And I don't know why they did that. But in the one called The Beginning of the End, which is the second to last one, they had her actually being, yeah, mean uh, to, to him. It, it just didn't make sense to me, but maybe they did it because of the reasons you're saying. It's like um, because the way things are in Japan now, like almost like to like, you know, uh, say, OK, sorry, we're going to do something different now. Right. Make the woman stronger. I don't know. Yeah, kind of empower her, uh, e- right. even though it's a monstrous female. And and that goes back to audition and the idea of, of the monstrous woman. Um, right. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. It, it's hard when, when you're talking about Japanese horror films, 
just inevitably, and I, I know at some point somebody is going to send me an email and, and say, like, would you shut up about women in Japanese horror movies? But it's <laughs> such a critical part of their culture. And it's such a critical difference in terms of how they view uh, themselves and their own roles. And it's it's something that contextually I think it's important to bring out because, you know, these movies don't they don't exist for Western eyes. I mean, certainly a lot of these movies were made with fingers crossed that the West would would get into them. But it still comes from a very, very uh, lengthy tradition of of women not necessarily being treated the way that you would expect them to in the West, but it's not our culture. You know, it's not, it's, it's easy to pass judgment and, and be very tisk tisk about the whole thing. Uh, and obviously nobody, I don't think either of us are saying domestic abuse is okay. Um, but it also, it's something that's a, a, a fact of the matter in, in Japan. Um, the other thing uh, that I wanted to bring out that's a little less heavy and a little more fun is that Shimizu, I think, is very clearly riffing on The Shining in this movie, too. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of those kind of isolated shots, like both at the beginning and end of the movie, you see uh, like empty streets and the uh, the tacked up uh, missing posters and, you know, paper being pushed along the road by wind and, and so forth. And it's all very isolated. Uh, the fact that Japanese homes in general are very compact, even though this is a two-story house, the rooms themselves are, are generally very small. Um, that there's a sense of um, claustrophobia and isolation in equal measures. Like when you go into this house you are going into a place that feels oppressive and the way that it's shot with a lot of, of, uh, the tight angles, um, the way that shadow is, is used as you're kind of going through the house, uh, in, in some of the scenes is very similar to the shining as well. And going back to the idea of the, the sort of monstrous husband and, and monstrous father, um, that, it seems like Shimizu is taking a little bit from Jack Torrance, uh, where you have uh, a, a father who essentially instigates the supernatural occurrences. Um, whether or not he is, uh, um, you know, as you said in later films, they kind of retcon that. But earlier on, whether he's justified or not, the fact that he murders his wife and, <laughs> right. and child and the cat... Um, that that's what sets the events in motion. And that's a very shining kind of thing. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that Shimizu is sort of riffing on Western films with things like the shining and the exorcist, but is also making a movie that could not exist in any other context, but a Japanese film. Wow, I'll tell you, that blows me away, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> My two favorite movies are The Shining and The Exorcist, and obviously I adore this movie. So maybe in my subconscious, um, that might have something to do with, uh, you know, my love for the film. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Like, you know, uh, there's about four or five different books I reference for every show. And, uh, Juan, fortunately is one of those that appears in every one of them. 
<laughs> so, uh, cool. yeah, so there's a, a fun blend of interpretations of this film. Um, and, and also like critical responses, I think are, are really interesting to the movie. Uh, like Western, Western criticism of the film tended to be like, this doesn't make any sense. This is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, you know, yeah, it's kind of creepy, but beyond that, who cares? Um, but the movie definitely caught the attention of horror fans. And once it, I mean, to the, to the extent that it got in the hands of Sam Raimi right? and Raimi liked the movie so much, he, he wanted to remake it, but he, he felt like Shimizu was such, um, like a singular talent that he didn't want anyone to direct a remake of Juan, but Shimizu himself. So cool. It's such a smart move. And he kept with it. He did the, he did this one and he did the sequel. And the thing about the grudge remake, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. The thing about the American grudge is that it takes parts from all the Juan movies, all, all the four previous ones that he, you know, he made, he threw into this movie. Yeah, kind of a, a greatest hits. Like I, you know, obviously I'm I'm aware <laughs> right. of Juan and Juan too, not so right. much the the first two. Um, right. but yeah, I mean, even in that, like when when I watch Juan too, especially all the uh, the schoolgirl stuff that happens in Juan too, kind of bleeds into the American, the Grudge, right? Sure, and uh, yeah, it it like a a lot of people kind of knee jerk dislike that movie. I think because it's a remake of Juan. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like the fact that Shimizu himself did it means that, well, it's his reinterpretation of his own material. Um, it's sort of like if you see, uh, Eric Clapton do a slowed down version of Layla and then bitch about (laughs) the fact that it's not the original. It's like, yeah, but it's his, it's his to do with what he wants. Exactly. Yes. Good point. Um, so yeah, I, I and I kind of love the grudge, uh, the American grudge, for completely different reasons. Um, but I, I do really like it. I think that it westernizes the film in a smart way. And in fact, you know, uh, the grudge was also shot in Japan. That was one of the deals that Rami made with Shimizu. Was I'll give you American actors, you can shoot it in Japan. It's your film to do with what you will. And just make it as good as as Juan, and we're we're done. And I don't know that at the end of the day, it's as good as Juan, but I don't think it's a whole lot worse. No, I think it's a damn good movie. It's almost like I, I, I can compare uh, "Let Me In" and "Quarantine" as good remakes of foreign movies. That that's what it kind of it kind of falls into that category with me because I enjoyed them not as much as I did their originals, but. It's, it's, you know, it's a good remake, and I think some of the hatred that comes forward has to do with the, like, like everything that happens in horror, or with anything. The trends got really big after this hit, and people started getting tired of seeing the long-haired Japanese girl. I think that's what happened. It started with the ring. Started, well, it all started with Ringu, honestly, and then the ring came here, and then away we go. But I think that a lot of people, I don't know, I think they just, they shun this now. I don't know why, but it, I think it's because they got tired of, of seeing this, the same old shtick. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. And by the time you get to something like, you know, Grudge 3, it's mm-hmm. it, it has worn pretty thin. And it's not, 
Shimizu at the helm anymore. And, you know, yeah, it just doesn't feel as inspired um, as as the grudge did, you know, even though the grudge is, as we said, kind of the greatest hits of, of the Juan films uh, and, and the curse films, but it still feels like a real thing. You know, as opposed to Grudge 3, which at that point just felt like, uh, I wonder how much more money we can make on this franchise before we got to put it out to pasture. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, it was toast by then. Um, one other thing before we, we wrap her up here, Dave. I have to know, did you ever play the game? <sighs> no, and I'm so pissed off that I haven't. I, I think I even own it, and I don't know what happened. I, I think someone gave it to me. It's a gift, or I bought it used, or something or other. But I have not gotten around to playing it yet. Yeah, and if you if you don't know what where uh, what we speak of here, uh, there was a for the Wii, not kind of unsurprisingly, you know, the Japanese console that is the most Japanese of consoles. Sure, uh, yeah. um, does uh, put out a film, uh, put out a film, put out a video game in two thousand nine. Uh, called you on the grudge haunted house simulator. And there is an image of it. I may, I may have to include this on, on the show notes page and it's uh, the, the Wii controller, the Wii, the Wii mote, I think is what it was called. It is the Wii mote. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, serves as a flashlight and it's you sweeping the flashlight around and you know i'm sure there are other elements but the uh the the picture that i'm looking at right now is of a flashlight trained at, on a distant corner of a room and there is uh kiyako on her on you know on her twisted hands crawling and mm. i propose with this new wave of virtual reality I want to bring this game back. I want to put it in VR. <laughs> and uh yeah. oh yeah. Uh you you might need to sign a release before playing it so that if you do in fact die while playing it, uh that a we are not liable uh for your death <laughs> and two that if you become an Onrio, you do not haunt us. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> Good call. I think that'll stand up in court. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm down with that. <laughs> uh, so, Dave, any any final parting thoughts uh, before we we step away from Juan? Um, being the the super fan you are, uh, you know, feel free to let loose here and 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 decry your love of this film. Well, like I said, the people that are seeing it for the first time after listening to us are, are the real lucky ones. But it, it's a fantastic movie. Like me personally, I uh, I did a show not too long ago. I guest starred another podcast, uh, 22 Shots of Moods and Horror. And we talked about the best movies of 2002. All of, we, we ranked movies, watched, you know, I watched about 35 movies. I picked this as my favorite movie of that year. I love the movie. And, and honestly, there's only one other movie, one other Asian movie that I think is as good, if not better. And that's it. Battle Royal and this are, are my top two movies. Ooh, that's that's pretty tough. Um, <laughs> I I would have to subcategorize, I think, and say it's probably my favorite of the ghost based films. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, 
I mean, Battle Royale is amazing. I really love Audition. Um, yeah. Yep. And and actually, uh, a, a one of the films we're going to be doing in about three episodes from this one is uh, Uzumaki, uh, which is another one of my favorite. And and that one is more kind of body horror ish. Uh, but it is bizarre. It's about a town that gets cursed by spirals. Um, which Ooh, I have not seen, so I'm going to have to get it before I listen to the show. It, yeah, I highly, highly recommend the movie, and I also recommend the uh, the comic upon which it is based, which was uh, a Junji Ito um, did the the comic that uh, Uzumaki is based on, and in fact, it's called Uzumaki. Junji Ito's uh, book is. And if you haven't read Junji Ito, do yourself a, a big, big favor and uh, hit, hit up Amazon and you can get a couple of like compendiums of his work for not a lot of money. And even as a, a Westerner uh, reading these and you actually have to physically read them differently than you would a Western comic because you read them from the back. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, it, it's weird, um, but those, those crazy Japanese, you know, and and I kind of appreciate the fact that even though it's translated uh, in into English, the the format of the books themselves are still Japanese, and it feels as you're reading it like you're reading something that that is already foreign, and then as you get into uh, Ito's twisted mind. It becomes even more so because even by Japanese standards, Junji Ito is a bit of a maniac. Um, and it's fantastic. So anyway, that's coming. Episode seven will be Uzumaki. Uh, but I, I, I'll quit pimping a show that hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> but they, <That's> okay. <laughs> Dave, uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, it, I can't say enough, uh, good things about having a super fan of your caliber here to talk about Juan. Uh, it is a, a genuine pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, sir. And I, I have been, I've, I've talked about it on podcasts, but I've never done a review and I've never even come close to having this, this type of discussion. I've always wanted to about this movie. And not only did we get to do it today, but the format that, that, that you decided to come out with and do it chronologically you really took me by surprise, and man, I was going to love doing it anyway, but that added to the joy of it all, so thank you very much. It was great to be here. Excellent, excellent. All right, so Dave, sit there uncomfortably while I talk us out. Um, that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Juan, uh, as you have heard from both Dave and myself, uh, a really amazing piece of film for both of us, and uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, this movie defies easy understanding. I will grant you that. But I think it, it gives us a terrific glimpse into cultural traditions that make uh, this film even more frightening, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, once again, you can find Dave uh, at uh, Exploding Heads Horror Podcast. Um, I think we have uh, tried to impress upon you how cool it is that he, he did this recent retrospective. And uh, and don't just listen to that one. Listen to all of them. Uh, the, you know, that's number 10. Go back. Start from the beginning. Be a, be a completist. Yeah, yeah, please do. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to join um, our discussion uh, of Asian horror films, 
uh, and music. We do a lot of music in that, that group um, uh, on Facebook. Check us out at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Hero Hero Go Show. Uh, drop me a line at Hero Hero at legionpodcasts.com. Uh, with any questions, comments, recommendations on any movies that you'd like to see that we haven't done yet. Um, I, I guarantee you some of your favorites haven't been announced, but, uh, they are coming. Uh, we'll be back next week with Ricky Morgan from the Hail Ming Power Hour. Oh, that's a good show. Um, cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, here to discuss what's really, um, the first foray that we've done into the world of haunted technology. Uh, and that's the South Korean film Phone. Uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. So, uh, that was also from 2002, so I recently watched it again, and that made my top ten for that year. So yeah, it's it, good stuff. It's a real strong movie, and uh, right along there with uh, like Ringu and Pulse, uh, those are movies that seem to be uh, a bit obsessed with the idea of technology as 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 a murderous force. Um, and it's going to be super fun to talk about that. So um, also. I've, if you're listening to this on iTunes, please, 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 uh, do us a big, big favor. Um, leave us a, a review and a rating and actually, uh, just a little behind the scenes. Uh, the popularity of a podcast and the visibility of a podcast is, is strictly based on leaving, uh, the star based rating. So, uh, please drop us one and, you know, I'll give you like a nickel if you do it. So, uh, just tell me, <laughs> tell me you did it and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll cut you a check. Um, what a guy. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I am not above bribery. <laughs> so, uh, uh, for, for Dave Zendano and myself, thank you for listening. And now as much headphones president as I can legally play you. Good night. <laughs>